two scripture readings as we hear God's word proclaimed to us. Uh, the first is from Hebrews chapter 11. So towards the back of your Bibles, Hebrews, one of the last uh, bigger books out there. Verse 8. Actually, uh, just to share this with you, I've been at Stepping Stones Bible Camp this week, and the theme was setting sail. Some of you know that because some of you were there. And we had this concept of life as a journey, and we were on a ship, and Jesus is our captain, and the Bible is our compass. So whenever I got the uh, people to turn to the Bible, the campers and counselors and that, I'd say, compass out, and they'd put their Bible out and make sure they get it up, and then uh, I'd say, look for your direction, and then they'd go and they'd find the text. So... Helpful sometimes these things that we, we illustrate, right? And we hang our thoughts on that. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And so we'll end that reading there and then turn to Genesis 50, first book of the Bible, last chapter. Genesis 50 comes right after Genesis 49. You're probably not surprised by that. But Genesis 49 um, has the account of Jacob's death, Jacob's death and burial, and uh, then that flows into chapter 50. So chapter 49, verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then, chapter 50, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. 
Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means uh, mourning of Egypt. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, as we uh, began that reading, we ended with the life of Jacob. As he was on his deathbed, he's pronouncing these blessings to his children. We didn't read that part. That's all of chapter 49. And they're not just blessings kind of in a general way, but they're specifically uh, future words. They're, they're predictive blessings, we could say. Another way to describe it might be a prophetic blessing. And as Jacob is looking to the future and speaking to his children, he shows himself to be a man of faith. Actually, that's what Hebrews 11 explicitly says about him. By faith, he did this. Do you think it was easy for him to be a man of faith from what you know about Jacob? I would say it was very difficult, very difficult. Jacob, once again, as he ends his life, finds himself in exile. Chapter 15 of Genesis, very important chapter as, as God speaks with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, 
promises him so much, and then he does say, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So he says, I'm going to give you this great land, but he says they will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's true that right after that, God promises to Abraham that he will take them out of that affliction, and they'll, they'll have great possessions, and, and that's obviously very positive, but, but to Jacob, who knows these words, right, Abraham passes them on to his children, these words are spoken, the, the family knows this promise from God. So Jacob knows these words, but he doesn't know exactly when it's all going to take place and how. So, so here he is in a land that is not his own, he's a sojourner, and he's dying, and he has to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, I use that phrase. That's a phrase out of the Bible. Perhaps you're familiar with that, right? Because that's about the nature of faith, that it's not a seeing thing. You don't, you don't see, therefore you need to have faith. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, says Hebrews 11. It's the proof of what is not yet seen. And yet here Jacob is very much a man of faith, and that's because, this is important, it's because of who God is. If you've got your Bibles open, turn back to chapter 48, verse 15. When Jacob first is blessing his sons, oh great, we have it up there? No. Well, chapter 48, verse 15, when Jacob's blessing Joseph, he says of God that God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Very meaningful words from the lips. Of Jacob. And so for us, God is our shepherd as well. God is our shepherd as well. This is a touch point with us and Jacob. I want to remind you of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that psalm is in the background of Genesis 50 for us this afternoon. And I've titled the message, The Lord Provides for His People. And we're going to see how He provides amid their distress, amid doubt, and ultimately amid death. Three D words. Hopefully that's helpful. So, Jacob has just died. Obviously, Joseph's heartbroken, right? It's a time of great distress. He falls on his father's face, verse 1. He weeps over him. He kisses him. And so, amid this distress, God provides. The Lord, we could say, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with Joseph through the valley of his father's death. Now, what does he provide? He provides a couple things. He provides the opportunity to fulfill his father's last wish. Go back to chapter 49, verse 29 and 30. It says that Jacob commanded his sons about where to be buried. It's very specific, very, very important to Jacob. And this is important also to God that he had been buried in that specific place. And so Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he makes this request. Pharaoh, let me go. Interesting. Let me go into Canaan that I may bury my father. And the Lord ensures that Pharaoh agrees. Right? The Lord is behind all of this. Uh, the Lord, Proverbs says, can direct the heart of a king like a 
course of water, like a stream. And, uh, and the Lord then, in his providence, ensures that Pharaoh agrees. And so Pharaoh, Jacob is embalmed. We could say a lot about the embalming process. I've done that before when I've preached this sermon. I'm just going to skip over that a bit. I don't want to pretend to be an expert on it. But the general gist of it, when the embalming process is that uh, the body will not decay and it's able to be transported to a place like Cana. So uh, it's, we're told in verse 3 there, 40 days are required for it. There's a drying out process that needs to take place. It takes some time. And, uh, but the Egyptians notice um, they're very supportive of all of this. We have Joseph's brothers, uh, his father's household, going out to Canaan, but also we have many from Egypt. We have chariots and horsemen going with the sons of Israel out of Egypt to Canaan. A great company, we're told, verse 9, a very great company. And together they travel to Machpelah. They see Jacob to his resting place just as he desired. So God provides the fulfillment of this last wish. God also provides the space to grieve, the space to grieve. Joseph's deeply distressed. And what does the passage say? He wept. And, and not just him, but lots of people wept. Everybody's weeping. And, and in fact, the Egyptians, verse 3, wept for him 70 days. That's a long time. When a loved one's gone, we always grieve them. We, we never stop, in a sense. But, but the particular intense mourning period or immediately following their death, death, 70 days is a long time. For the Israelites, it was usually about 7 to 30 days, a week to a month. Um, but the Egyptians mourned royalty for 70 days. So Jacob is being shown a very high honor here as they take this period of time to mourn him. And then also there's even seven more days on the way, right? They have this journey. They stop for a week in this city or this place at least, and, and their grieving is so powerful that the place is renamed the mourning of Egypt. And so the Lord provides this for Joseph and his brothers. Now let me ask you, has, have you experienced this provision from God? Has he provided this for you? Because God is gracious, isn't he? You say amen to that, God is gracious. And um, especially though, amid times of distress, he shows extra grace and extra mercy. He provides us with supportive people, for example, right, in our lives. You, the opportunity to fulfill last wishes, space to grieve, the things we've just been looking at. And why does he do this? Important question, why? Because he is your shepherd. That's why he does it. So when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in the sense of another person's death, you need not fear because the Lord knows what you need. And so just like sheep are able to lie down in green pastures because they're secure in the hands of the shepherd, same thing with us. You're able to rest in peace in the hands of the Lord despite your distress. That's all very good. I want to add another layer to this because this is not just about Jacob and Joseph, uh, the individuals. There's a reason this story is here for us in Scripture as part of the one big story that is Scripture. Jacob is the head of a nation. He's the, the patriarch of a people, we could say. So there's these 12 sons, there's, the, there's their sons and grandsons, and eventually they're going to be, they're going to be large. They're going to be a, a, a nation on their own. And, and so it's important that he's shown the honor due ahead of nations. Because this points us to how God is providing for his people that they will one day have a plot, so to speak, 
in the promised land. They will have the promised land just as Jacob is already being carried there in trust. So God is confirming the promise that he swore on oath to Abraham to this family through this burial. So God provides amid distress, first thing. Secondly, God provides amid doubt. Despite all this provision amid the distress, there's still doubt in the minds of the brothers. Let's focus on the brothers. In the hearts, really, we could say of the brothers. Look at verse 15 with me, if you will. Verse 15. When they saw that their father was dead, what did they say? It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And if you're familiar with the Jacob story to this point, you're, and Joseph, you're like, well, didn't these guys reconcile? Like Joseph was in Egypt, the brothers came, there was some testing, and, and it all came together. They wept, and they had meals together, and they hugged, and it seems, it seems like it's all good. What happened? Well, you know, sometimes the father dies in a family, like a, the patriarch of the family, or the matriarch too, the mother, and then the family kind of falls apart. The cohesion's not quite there like it used to be. Maybe you've seen that, maybe you've experienced that to a degree. I would guess that some of us have. That's kind of what's going on for the brothers. And so amid the doubts that they have, does Joseph really, truly, fully forgive us? How's this going to go? Amid that, God provides. The Lord, who is his people's shepherd, walks with them as they fear evil. And what does he provide them with? Two things, comfort and assurance. Comfort and assurance. First of all, the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness. Uh, The brothers need to be assured that Joseph forgives them. They have a hard time wrapping their head around that. How could he? We've done so much evil towards him. They still fear revenge. What if he wants payback? And so they make something up to tell Joseph. I think that's the suggestion in the text. Verse 15, they're worried. And so verse 16 starts off with the word so. It's a connecting word there. So in light of their fears, their doubts, they sent this word to Joseph. And they, I think, make up words on the lips of Jacob. Do they need to ask Joseph for forgiveness once more? I mean, you look at the text, and Joseph right away is weeping as they speak to him, and and they bow down to him and think of of all the meaning behind that. Joseph originally had this dream, and my brothers are going to bow down to me, and now here again, once more, they're bowing down to him in humility. Did they need to do that? Joseph is quick to, again, reaffirm his forgiveness. Verse 19, do not fear. Do not fear. You have nothing to worry about, brothers. For am I in the place of God? Right? See, what he's doing there, he's he's leaving the righting of wrongs to God. I'm not God. It's not my decision. How can he do this? How can he just be so forgiving? What strength is in Joseph that enables him to show mercy and, and and goodness to his brothers like this, and just let God take care of it, and just be at peace, and be reconciled. Well, he can do this because God has shown him mercy and goodness first. So it's as if he's saying, I think it's appropriate to put these words on the mouth of Joseph, the Lord is my shepherd, brothers, and he's been my shepherd my whole life, just like he was for dad. And so I want for nothing, and I fear no evil. He has restored me and comforted me, and I know that his goodness and his mercy are for me. And beloved, this takes us right to the heart of the gospel that we preach. I trust that Pastor Phil preaches here every week. 
the good news that Jesus is, or God is merciful and kind to us and good to us in Jesus. Because you see, you might wonder sometimes whether God can really love you, just like the brothers here. You might be a longtime church member, professing Christian, who has a very sensitive conscience. And you wonder, can God really forgive me? I've done so much evil. Or you might be still on the fence about Christianity and you're seeking and you're, you're, you're testing things out, but you're not quite sure yet. Does God really love me? Maybe he wants to pay me back for all the bad that I've done. See, for when we have these kinds of thoughts, if we have these kinds of thoughts, then we need to look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, what we see is that God focused all of his hatred against evil, all of his hatred, which is very real. He has wrath against evil. He took all of that and he focused it on himself, on himself, in Jesus. He paid the penalty that was due us because of our sins. And so because God took that on himself in the person of Jesus, all that's left for us as we believe in him is the loving kindness and mercy of God. That's it. To use the illustration of Joseph, it's like God has freed us from the prison of our sin and he's placed us in the seat of honor next to him. And because this is true, because we have been forgiven and loved in this way, now we can also forgive and love others. Right? I'll show you how this works in the New Testament. Romans 12 says to us, um, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. So don't, don't take revenge, leave that up to God. How can we do that? Well, then we go back to the beginning of Romans 12, verse 1, which says, in view of God's mercy. Right? It's in view of God's mercy that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices of thankfulness to God as we worship Him with our lives. And that includes not being vengeful. In view of His merciful provision towards us, we can feel free to forgive others. We can feel free to let God be God, trusting that He will right every wrong. So there's the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness, first of all. Secondly, the comfort and assurance of his purposes. That's what Joseph next speaks to, the purposes of God. Verse 20. If you know one verse from chapter 50, you probably know verse 20, the first half at least. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So what is God's purpose in all of this? It's good. God meant it for good. Well, then why has there been so much suffering throughout Joseph's life? Well, in the providence of God, this is how it happened. What is the providence of God? I've used that word a, a few times, providence. Heidelberg Catechism says of the providence of God is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby nothing comes to us uh, by chance, but only from his fatherly hand. No accidents. The Belgic Confession, another one of our confessions, says he leads and governs all things according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. What do you think of that? Oh, I don't like it. That means God causes evil to happen. Well, what would Joseph say if he were here? He'd look at you and he'd smile and he'd say, God isn't responsible for evil. God doesn't cause evil, right? Because he says to his brothers here, you meant evil against me, but, but God meant it for good. Earlier, chapter 45, he says, you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life, right? So you see those two things happening at the same time there. This is how God can work, and this is how he does work. 
through secondary causes, if we call him the primary cause, he works through secondary causes to accomplish his good. He works through things like a famine. He works through jealous brothers. He works through false imprisonment. He does. Through it all, he's at work. His good purpose in the back of of all the sin, all of the calamity brought on by a famine, for instance. It's mysterious to us. It's wonderful and ultimately incomprehensible. And we have to rest with that. But, But if you're struggling with this, this all comes together most clearly in the death of Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus, what do we have? We have the greatest evil that's ever been perpetrated. But we also have the greatest good that's ever been accomplished. And you go to the book of Acts, and Peter preaches this way to to the people in Jerusalem. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I hope you see that there, the two things together. The evil purpose of men. You put him to death, Peter says, by nailing him to the cross. But also then the good purpose of God. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from death. And not only him, but then all who are in him. And so this continues to be the case today, that God works through evil for good. And that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We can be comforted, we can be assured of these things. So the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness, of his purposes, third and final thing, the comfort and assurance of his help, his help. Verse 21, an underrated verse in this chapter. It gave us the title for the sermon, I will provide, Joseph says there to his brothers, don't fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. This is a family that needs somebody to speak kindly to them. They need comfort. They've been through a lot. There's a a pretty dramatic history, a lot of tension. And and even when that was resolved, when they reconciled, reconciliation is still an intense process. At least it was for them. usually is. And And then they transition to Goshen from Canaan, so there's a big move. And then Jacob dies, the head of the family. Lots has gone on. And so Joseph's words here promise something that's needed. And you know, it's interesting if you look at the original language behind the English here, where it says he spoke kindly to them. Literally, it says he spoke to their hearts. He spoke to their hearts. That's a picture of God's kind providence toward us. Um, That God, God does so much for us. He forgives us, and we spend so much time, rightly so, talking about that. But, but God also provides above that all things needed for body and soul. And so when we go through challenging seasons, which we do, times of refreshing inevitably follow. It's like if you're in a desert and you need an oasis, and there it is. I can't tell you exactly how God does that, what it looks like, how long it will last, these kinds of things. Sometimes it's very small, seemingly. But, but God provides for us along the way this, in this way because this is how a good shepherd works. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And so amid your doubt, brothers, sisters, boys, girls, know that God will provide for you the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness, of his purposes, and his help. And then as God provides that for you, right, the next little beautiful piece of it, 
he also enables you to be used by him to minister to others. So the Lord provides amid distress, the Lord provides amid doubt, and the Lord also provides amid death. Um, the chapter in the book ends with the death of Joseph. And so God provides for him. The Lord, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with him through the valley of his own impending death. And what does he provide? He provides the hope of life. The hope of life. Uh, already there's something else before that. Uh, I mean, Joseph has had a good life, verse 22. He lived 110 years. Verse 26, again, that's repeated. Did you know many famous Egyptians, notable Egyptians, are said to have died at 110 years old. Not sure what quite to make of that with the numbers, but I just want to put that before you to say, Joseph was viewed as living the ideal lifespan. He has had a blessed life, a full life. And there's some references to his children's children, to the third generation. This is a man who had many family members to the generations around him. A blessing, we know that. God has given him a full life. But, but really what we're focused on in verse 24 and 25, the life that is yet to come, which is fuller still. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, it says, swear an oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. That word surely is the oath word. It tips us off to the swearing of an oath. Why does Joseph say this? Well, maybe he's thinking back to Genesis 15. Again, remember, he knows that. It's been passed down to him. He knows that after a time of affliction in a foreign land, they're going to come out of that land with great possessions. And in fact, that's where the Bible goes next, to the story of the Exodus out of Egypt. The end of Genesis takes us to Moses now as the leader of the people. And it is a people now. It's a big nation. And they're mistreated, this nation of people, and enslaved by a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and who feels threatened by this growing nation within his boundaries, his borders. And Moses, as the leader of the people, is going to approach this Pharaoh, and he's going to say to him, let me go. Let us go. Let us go into the wilderness that we may worship him. Right? You see the parallel. And this time, the providence of God is such that this Pharaoh is going to disagree. He hardens his heart. And he refuses Moses. And yet Israel leaves anyway in the end. This time the chariots aren't going with them in support, but this time the chariots are chasing them in opposition as they leave for Canaan. And God works. He works through the evil of the Egyptian army to accomplish a great good, the salvation of his people through the Red Sea. And then they're in the wilderness, journeying. They're sojourners, or, or pilgrims is another word, just like Jacob had been, and death is all around them. And they struggled at times with the providence of God, complaining about their circumstances, pining for the things of Egypt, oh, if only we had it. And yet all the while, right before them on the journey, the hope of life is there, the promised land. So how is it for us? We live amid the reality of death. Do you see the Lord's provision for you? Do you see the hope of life? Because it's there for you in Jesus, in Jesus. I want to point you to the last words of this book, Genesis. Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now that word coffin is the same word for the word ark. You, know, you think of the ark of the covenant. 
So maybe you haven't considered this before, but as the Israelites wander through the desert, there's two arcs present in their wanderings. One ark carrying the bones of a dead man, and the other ark carrying the tablets of the law given by the living God. And in order for man to live, he needs to fulfill the law of God. And Jesus is that man. And so in Jesus, we have the greatest provision that God has ever and could ever have given us. In Jesus, we have the good shepherd, as he calls himself, who laid down his life for the sheep. And so then the whole story comes together in him. From the beginning, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And the bones of Jacob are crying out from the grave. And and the blood of Jesus answers from the cross. And so in Jesus, God has surely visited us. Do we see it? Because again, we're sojourners like Israel on a pilgrimage through a place that is not our forever home. I like to say that we, my wife and I just moved, the family and I just moved in June from one rental home to another rental home. And so we're very conscious of the fact that we're not in our forever home. But even if you have built your dream home, you're established, it's still not your forever home. We're still pilgrims on a journey. We've, we've passed through the Red Sea. Praise God for that. But, but as we journey, it's not always pleasant. And so then do we complain about our circumstances? Do we, do we pine for things that are different? Do we secretly wish that we could just avoid the desert altogether? Just settle in Egypt, you know? Promised land was a dream. A nice dream. Just a dream. Let's see if the book of Genesis teaches anything. I think it teaches that God is with his people. He has been with them all. And when we go to Hebrews, and we read there from Hebrews 11, a portion, that all these saints that are listed, God was with all of them, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses. And, and it goes on towards the end of that passage, and it says, time would fail me to tell you of all of these other guys, and there's some women in there as well, unnamed, all saints, all suffering in some way, wandering, journeying, not having received everything that was promised. And the challenge for us then as we journey is to believe, to truly believe that the Lord is my shepherd and he is with me. That, that when I'm in the presence of my enemies, you know what, he does prepare a table for me. And he anoints my head with oil and he makes, my, makes sure that my cup is filled, that I'm not empty. That's the challenge. But the saints of old listed here anyways, they believed this. And so they lived in hope. Hope because they hadn't received everything. You know, who needs hope if they already have it all? They hadn't received what God had promised, but they believed that he promised something, and they believed that it was good, better than anything this earth could offer. They believed in a better country, a heavenly inheritance. They believed in God's provision of perfection for his people forever. Do you believe this? That Jesus truly is the first fruits of a glorious harvest to come, a resurrection of so many bodies to life everlasting, glorious life, the new creation. Because you see, if you believe this, it makes all the difference as to whether or not you have hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Doesn't that make you just have so much anticipation? So God will visit us. He will surely visit us. That's how the Bible ends, you know. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And to this we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, while we wait, we wait with hope, confessing that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And can I hear you say amen? Shall we pray? Lord God, Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you for your word this afternoon. A word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word that expresses your goodness and your greatness. We thank you that you are a providing God, that you are a protecting God, and that you comfort and assure us of so many good things. We pray that you would help us to rest in your kind providence and also to be at peace when we face difficult providence. Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are physically sick among us. Also those who are, are grieving the loss of loved ones. Um, knowing that this is something that is ongoing and it's complicated and it, it doesn't happen in a linear fashion. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your people. We pray for those as well that are physically fine but spiritually sick, those struggling to live a life of, of faith and obedience, struggling with many questions about who you are and what you've called them to be and to do. Lord, we pray that you would help all of us to live a holy, healthy, and happy lives as disciples of Jesus. And we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are faithful, that you will never forsake us, and that indeed our future is glory, and that glory will be beyond anything we can imagine. And so hear us, comfort us, encourage us, and bless us. Let us leave this place with joy as we sing and receive your blessing. Amen. Let's sing praise to the Lord the Almighty.